<laughs> so then you just picture them like rolling into these Capitol Records meetings high as and dressed, and dressed like, insane. Like, what I feel like I really squandered my early 20s when I hear stories like this. I'm like, dude, I I just like drank six Sierra Nevadas and fell asleep with a lit cigarette in my hand. Like, these guys were living, man. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the podcast where we, a group of lifelong friends, lifelong musicians, have set our minds to going through the 1001 albums you must hear before you die list. We go through it album by album. Each week we pick a new random album. We take a close look, a close listen, and we meet up to talk about what is right about it, what is wrong about it. We we laud some higher onto the pedestal and we we tear some down into the into the muck with us. The great so, abyss. <laughs> the great abyss as we know it, exactly. <laughs> and you know, we we really appreciate you tuning in with us. This week we're gonna be talking about the Beastie Boys Paul's Boutique. Sort of an undeniable classic. I'm excited to hear what everyone thinks about it and where everyone was coming from on this record. Keep in mind that if you haven't listened to this record at all, we strongly recommend you take a pause, listen to it. Or if you're just joining us and you want to catch up with us for next week, we'll announce the record we're all going to be listening to next at the end of this episode. And we encourage you to listen uh, to it. And then after we talk about this, this record, kind of where it fits into the context of music generally, into its genre, into the work of the the artist and just our various thoughts and complaints about it. At the end, we vote and see, does it really, is it really something that belongs on the must hear list? Is it an album you absolutely must hear before you die? And we're, we're a bit critical of that, of that list as it currently stands. But uh, yeah, I think we'll see how this one goes. I'm, I'm optimistic about Paul's boutique. So uh, as a way of quick introduction to us, we are Friends who have known each other for 20 plus years. We went to school together. We've played music together and I've just always loved to listen to and pick apart albums. I will introduce myself first and then I'll throw it around the room. My name is Rob. I've played guitar for 25 years, written and recorded five or so albums and played hundreds of shows in my time in small, empty bar rooms. <laughs> <laughs> I'll kick it over to, I'll kick Sorry. it over to Tom. Hey, I'm Tom. I, uh, yeah, been playing bass for about 25, 26 years, singing harmony. Actually, Adam taught me how to sing harmony way back in the day. I don't know if you remember, we did Side by Side. We, we were, were like seven day. years yeah. old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was pretty, it was pretty adorable. Yeah, so bass player, same thing as Rob, recorded five or six studio albums, hundreds of shows with various attendants, and uh, super appreciator of music. I'm one of those guys with music running through my head constantly, and uh, yeah, it... it, it Gives me a reason to get out of bed in the morning besides, you know, my family and stuff. Anyway, <laughs> Alan, take it away. <laughs> well, it depends on what kind of music we're talking about here. No, thank you. So I'm Alan, also a musician, a bit of a weekend warrior, uh, bassist, playing in a few bands here and there. To complete the incestuous circle, Tom, you sort of taught me bass. So, you know, there's kind of a nice connection. But yeah, just uh, kind of grew up listening to music. You know, I'm opinionated, but... No. Yeah, somehow. But yeah, just kind of excited to uh, dissect this album. Hey, I'm Adam. Same thing with the other guys. I've been playing music for probably the better part of 25 years. 
play guitar, keyboard, sing. I, I fronted a, uh, a cover band for, I don't know, 10 years or something. Made a living doing it. A lot of fun. Best times of my life musically. Super fun. So, not that that's a qualification of singing laid 400 times or <laughs> blister in the sun 800 times but tell uh, me you did laid in the original key and at least went for those high parts oh uh, oh definitely went for the high notes yeah <laughs> along with take on me right ah, nice. oh yeah getting scandinavian up in this <laughs> rob back to you so we're all friends. We've talked about a million records. And one of the fun things about doing this podcast has been some surprises. Records come up to us that I've never heard or that we've never heard before. It's it's a chance to kind of learn about some new new records to to complain anew or or maybe get a little deeper into stuff that we've heard only glancingly. In this particular case, the Beastie Boys Paul's Boutique, I feel like most of us have a bit of a history with it. So coming at it from a little bit of a different angle. I'll start with myself, where I'm coming from on this record. Listen to it a fair amount in high school and college, which would have been around 10 or 15 years after it originally came out in 1989. And I sort of moved through, even though I was 10 or so years late, I moved through the Beastie Boys catalog more or less in sequence of what they recorded. In other words, I started with their first record when I was earlier on in high school and then kind of moved on to their second record, which is Paul's Boutique. And so was pretty familiar with this, of course, giving it a super intense listen, kind of picking through the samples, listening to some of the, the sampled tracks, uh, the original recordings it was really fun this week. But, you know, I'll just tell you right off the bat, I've always I've always liked this. It doesn't mean I, it's without uh, its flaws and we will discuss those. But that's sort of where I'm starting from on Paul's Boutique. How about you, Tom? What do you think? Well, uh, I did not listen to the Beastie Boys chronologically. I, I sort of came to them uh, right around the beginning of college, and I listened to them completely out of sequence. And this was the era like of Napster, where you're sort of downloading a bunch of stuff, and you're not necessarily like listening to the entire uh, album all at once. And I was a little bit surprised when I was like, oh, this is their second album. It feels like a more mature album versus License to Ill versus Check Your Head. I would have put it at number three. I knew it came out before. What's it? Ill Communication? Is that the one that they yeah, had? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, I knew it came out before that one. So I thought it was third. I, yeah, I was quite impressed with it. I, th I thought that it was deep. There's layers to it that uh, don't necessarily get replicated in popular hip-hop for kind of a long time and I, I found it to be pretty impressive there was some some stumbles on there certainly sometimes where they sort of got away from that core thesis that made it work really well but overall i was i was quite impressed with that i thought it was pretty good yeah this one was a sort of tricky one for me because it was hard to like disentangle the nostalgia and the vibe you know from like an objective critique of the album, right? Because it was kind of hard to approach this, not thinking about all the time I spent in high school listening to this, you know, like all the road trips up to Philly, South Street, just just like rocking this album on on repeat. What was interesting is around that time, I, I had kind of got into the, some of their st later stuff, like Check Your Head and um, Ill Communications and sort of started going back into the catalog and found this album yeah, and it was just, um, it, it kind of had that like old school vibe to me that kind of connected right away from just, you know, listening to old school music in the house growing up with my parents. It's It just had like a resonance that the other ones didn't. And so um, it was kind of one of their only albums that I can actually just listen to start to finish and, and have it feel like it's thematic and, and that it sort of like holds together. But, you know, it's just, it's just great. It it, uh, it holds up really well too. Uh, a lot of great kind of associations with, with this 
record. I dig what you're saying about the how it holds up. So not a huge hip hop guy, but listening to uh, in a prior episode, we had reviewed LL Cool J's Mama Said Knock You Out. And it has a very distinct sound, right? It's got that kind of 80s beat synth, you know, drum machine thing. Because this is this one was all sampled, it definitely, it, I would say timeless because it doesn't latch itself to a specific time period of an instrument. Like we're going to use the 80s synth, we're going to use the 80s drum machine. The fact that they they took samples from, you know, across the board, decades worth of music. I appreciated that. I, th- I thought that sounded cool. But I'm also a bit of a curmudgeon in terms of uh, I'm, I'm the kind of guy who, who finds the music the most enthralling part of the song. And so it, to me, it kind of felt like, oh, well, we couldn't come up with cool stuff. So we'll just borrow all the best parts of the song from everywhere else. And again, coming from a guy who knows jack shit about the Beastie Boys. And in fact, this is the first <laughs> time, Rob, that definitely probably the only guy on this uh, in the group here who had never heard this album and knows very little about the Beastie Boys. Got it. Yeah. Well, I think it's worth saying you sort of just dis- dismissed the whole genre of music there uh, via, <laughs> via, via your critique of the concept of sampling. And I'm, I understand. And get off my lawn. <laughs> I understand where some of that uh, criticism yeah, comes no. from. I think what we can successfully argue or, you know, what we what I may argue today is that there's a spectrum. Well, just like in any genre or just like in any if sampling is sort of a technology or a technique, then there's there's a spectrum of using it really creatively or effectively to to really lazily. And I think the Beastie Boys are uh, certainly in some points on this record, a, a good example of using it very creatively and being being very innovative with how they approach things. Oh, and one more thing. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that, sadly, this is the second time we've had this conversation. <laughs> I thought it was just deja vu. I thought it was just me. So it, was all, it was all that oh, acid Jesus. you took all in right. the 70s, Adam. Right. <laughs> Messing with your brain, dude. <laughs> All the yeah. shots of Jaeger you had to do while singing laid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some some fool forgot to hit the record button. I don't know who, who would do something like that. I just assumed it was a hazing ritual to like make yeah. me do this again. It's also like 85 degrees guy. in this room. So some like Kafka nightmare where you're just like forced to listen to a bunch this, of jackasses yammering <laughs> of audio. This will continue. The beatings will continue until morale improves. Yeah. Okay. One, so, I, you know, I do want to, before we move on, I, I want to, I want to reference something that I think it, it comes from what Alan, you were talking about, like the listening to music growing up. And I, I feel like you and Adam are like both sides of the coin on this, which is the nostalgia of the songs that you hear. Like, Adam, you're like pitching it as a negative. I just want to listen to those right, songs. Yeah. And Alan, you're like pitching right. it as a positive of like, <laughs> oh, you're using this to create this kind of soundscape that is then, you know, a new creative output from that. And I was also thinking about this in terms of like the evolution of the Beastie Boys generally. I feel like everybody knows you got License to Ill kicks in with Rhyming and Stealing. And that's the one that that's the Led Zeppelin sample, right? At the beginning of Rhyming and Stealing. When the, 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 the levy breaks, right? When the levy breaks, yeah. I feel like the samples that were used in License to Ill are like probably at the music appreciation level that a lot of people are in high school. And then like the samples that are used in Paul's Boutique are like when you're like maybe a little bit more hip and you have like a broader musical palette. And so there's like a little bit more to appreciate from that. I appreciate that evolution. But Adam, it sounds like you being like the uber 70s music nerd that you were growing up, that that actually works as a negative for you. I found it to be a very big positive for me. So yeah, I, I listening to it, 
I did start to kind of get off my old man horse, or my old man soapbox, because it, it was fun going through the album and realizing what it was like, oh, wait, are these? Oh, I see what they're doing. And as the album progressed, being able to pick out and obviously not a lot of them, right? Because I think there was a remarkable amount of samples used. You know, maybe I got 10%, but it was actually fun anticipating the next song and thinking like, oh, is that the George Clinton song or is that an Eagles song or a Beatles song? So I, I did enjoy it from that aspect. And I do, I am starting to appreciate more the, the idea of sampling, right? Like, I get it. Like, everybody stole that D chord. You know, like, it's <laughs> it, eventually it has to stop somewhere. It's like, oh, you took that A note. No, well, no, it's in the, it's in the musical lexicon. But those so bring up a lot of good I questions about, like, what, what is originality and what is art really? Is there anything new? Is it even possible to create anything new? Because it's all, everything derives from something, right? Which is obviously right. very um, petty critique here, but, <laughs> but yeah, there's nothing new. Let's, let's, let's be honest. So you mentioned the age range and I think Alan also mentioned nostalgia. You know, the Beastie Boys, when they made that first record, they were teenagers. When they made this record, they were 21 and 22 that's crazy. And so they most likely God, were like going babies. through that time of their musical experience in probably in a similar way we did. And I think it's... We, we they were going to a lot of fish concerts, too. And <laughs> <laughs> Just getting dosed in the parking lot. I think it's safe to say that college was a time where you heard a lot of records you hadn't heard before. <laughs> My point is, we've spoken before, you know, we don't need to get too deep into it, about how certain music... I didn't think too hard about it, but it's hard to separate the nostalgia of where I was when I first heard this. As with all music, it brings back these kinds of sense memories. And it's possible that Adam... It's not super surprising that Adam would have a slightly harder time getting on to the Beastie Boys Paul's Boutique wavelength, being that he's now, you know, 20 years older than they were when they were making this. Broken this. old man is another way of saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But their brand is fun. So we should say something, too. So it's interesting, I think, with this record that give a little bit of the background. But basically, when this came out, it was it was critically reviewed you know, pretty well, but it did not sell well. It was a huge disappointment for the record label and for the Beastie Boys themselves. And this was partially relative to the fact that they had had such huge, wild success with their first record, License to Ill. This is the one that has Fight for Your Right to Party on it, No Sleep Till Brooklyn, and uh, you know a few other hits. They had been kind of taken under the wing of Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons, who had started Def Jam, basically launched Def Jam partially with them. They went on a, world, a couple world tours, had a huge stage show. They opened for Madonna on the Like a Virgin tour, and they were having all the success that sold millions and millions of copies. And they kind of split from Def Jam over some monetary dispute. They were getting a little bit annoyed with the all the frat boys and beer drinkers that were coming to their shows. They, they weren't those kind of hipsters. They were pot-smoking New York hipsters. Totally different brand of immature hipster. And they, they, they sort of weren't in love with that image and, and kind of that road life. And so they had sort of split up, become a little split up from the record label, split up as a band. Not sort of officially, but it moved, uh, you know, folks had moved around. There's three people in the Beastie Boys we should probably level set for folks. Two are named Adam. There's Adam Horowitz, who goes by Ad Rock. There's Adam Yalk, who goes by MCA. And there's a guy called Michael Diamond, who goes by Mike D. So anyway, they split. Ad Rock, for one, went to LA. They're like sort of a quintessential New York group. They grew up in New York as teenagers. They were best friends in high school, that kind of thing. And they weren't really sure what to do next musically kind of wandering around. MCA like started another band in Brooklyn. Ad Rock was in like a couple 
movies. I think he ended up meeting his his wife. He's married to the woman who was in um, Say Anything. I want to say he's still married to her. I think her name's like Ioni Sky. Anyway, and so they weren't they weren't sure what to do. You know, deep cut. That's a deep right. cut right there. Right, right, right. <laughs> You know, so they weren't sure what to do. And basically, this comes about because Ad-Rock's at some Hollywood party and he meets these guys called the Dust Brothers. They're going by the Dust Brothers. They're these young trying to be producers and they are sort of trying to pioneer this. I believe what they were calling at the time sam- sample delia, like sample and psychedelia or whatever. They had a bunch of demo tapes where they splashed a bu- uh, smashed a bunch of stuff together that you kind of hear now in Paul's Boutique. They were thinking about trying to record it or release it as an instrumental and Ad-Rock was just so blown away by listening to these demo tapes. He calls up the other Beastie Boys. He's like, we got to work with these guys. Let's figure out how to make an album with them. And the good news is that the record company lets him alone. And they end up spending a ton of money on this record. But when it eventually comes out, it takes over 10 years to sell a million copies. Like it is not, no one likes it at the time. Now, retrospectively, now it's considered this pillar, this milestone in hip hop people it's very well re- well reviewed in post, so to speak. Everyone thinks of it now as a great uh, milestone in the genre, but at the time, no one, everyone could care less. They were kind of going against their image as easily digestible or sort of rock, rap, pop, and we, you know, so I, that, that's sort of where they I want to start the record out. Of their days, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hands up now, hands You know, Fred Durst keeps oh. coming up on these conversations. Adam, 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 please tell me. Please First tell me that you covered some Link Biscuit songs in your band. Did you did cover Link Biscuit? I, I Look, think at one point to. we did that, oh, that, that screaming faith oh, thing God. where they were just... Oh, yeah, I, I had some questionable musical moments in my live performance career. But How did you guys decide what yeah. to cover? Did you, guys, did you get a vote or did they just... Did the top 40 just define the set list? I feel like there were some votes. I also feel like it was just kind of hit or miss too. Like you'd, you'd occasionally find like a home run, like kind of like lying in the weeds that nobody thought would go mm-hmm. over. And then occasionally you'd pick a tune. You're like, this one's going to crush it just for nostalgia. And it went nowhere. Mm-hmm. Like I, I had the idea to do like a hard rock version of the song from Dirty Dancing. Well, I had the, like we did like a rock version of that. And I'm thinking like, this is going to kill it. People are going to love this. Thought that was yeah, right, going to be good. <laughs> Well, we used to play to a majority college age girls who loved that movie, and it didn't. It was a it was a big flop. I just did I you, pictured did you do that any like, of the montages. Uh, the, the end. Oh, montages! <laughs> that was it. Come on, tell me that about was your a medley story. No. I was you, more curious if you, into... if you had a hard veto on anything, like where where your line was specifically, Adam. Oh man, it wasn't Nelly because yeah, I, 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 I saw you that. If you wanna go and take a ride with me, I saw oh, you do that yeah, one. Yeah. yeah, must be the money. I don't think I had much of a standard for myself. <laughs> I think I would have done whatever. Somebody was gonna pay me fifty dollars and three free beers. I was probably gonna do it. <laughs> All right, so back to Paul's boutique. So these guys, we could cut all that out in post. <laughs> Keep it <laughs> solid gold. So the Beastie Boys, they get together with these the, the Dust Brothers. The Dust Brothers, interestingly enough, went on. This was kind of their first big break, but they went on to produce and do a whole bunch of weird stuff. They produced the song "Mbop" by Hanson, which is a now that we should sneakily, have covered. Sneakily Damn great it. song. Oh, it, that, that's, first of all, that song is a banger. Uh, I was at a yes. uh, I was at a wedding where the band covered that. Everybody went effing nuts it was actually it was great <laughs> but uh you know we talked about this before but like dude the 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 record scratching that is in the middle breakdown of umbop if you guys haven't listened to umbop lately do yourselves a favor and go listen to the like 
peak 90s like well this hip-hop thing's kind of cool so we got to get like a little <laughs> wicka, wicka, wow in like a breakdown part and it's uh yeah i gotta imagine the dust brothers were just like as they were doing it just staring at the check the entire time that they put it on there they're just like ah, okay it, uh, all right i can do it i can do it look how many zeros there are i can do it I think this is the Dust Brothers. This is their rider. Maybe as a joke, they were just like, let's put it in our rider that we have to have a record scratch in there. This is like this is like Tom Cruise insisting that he ride a motorcycle in every single movie he's in. It's like, Tom, it's 5,000 years in the future. Screw it. I'm on a motorcycle. They still have motorcycles. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so the Dust Brothers went on to have a, a great career. Not only Umbop, but also they produced the White Zombie record. They made that Beck Odelay record. They produced the Fight Club soundtrack. They've, they've done a, a wide variety of things. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence because the other producer of the Beastie Boys are known for working with Rick Rubin also produced a wide gamut of music. Didn't stick to one genre. The guy produced the Beastie Boys. He produced Run DMC. He produced Slayer. He produced Johnny Cash records. I, you know, I think this is, call me crazy, but I think this is kind of a pure version of what music, music production is. I mean, yeah, it could be a cash in, as, as Tom alluded to. <laughs> but I like that they're just trying different things. Anyway, so I, I appreciate that. Beasties come together with the Dust Brothers. They spend, you know, several weeks recording uh, vocals and, and piecing together these tracks with the Dust Brothers in some crappy Hollywood apartment. The record company gets a little scared. They've signed to a new record company at this point, Capitol Records. The record company gets a little freaked out by the fact that they're doing everything super lo-fi in some guy's apartment. And so they move them over to the record plant, which is like this very prestigious studio where, you know, Steely Dan and people like that recorded like ultra clean. And they end up spending like hundreds of thousands of dollars to re-record everything. (laughs) And at the end, they're like, the apartment tapes were better. (laughs) Did they use the apartment or did they have to use the studio tapes? I believe they they used mostly the the studio tapes. I think they used a mix, but like it ended up being this long drawn out process and the Beastie Boys probably didn't help that. They were 21, 22. They were smoking a lot of pot. There is a bong rep sampled on the, the record. That's that's them, believe it or not. I read that they... Like, no, take 15. I don't believe Let's do it. <laughs> I don't know if we got enough bottles on that one. That one. Repack enough. it, baby. <laughs> I heard that they that they took the you know some of the budget and they just like filled the studio with an arcade's worth of games and air hockey and pinball and we're just like... <laughs> doing that all day it's the most 21 year old thing you could ever so do they, they enjoyed themselves for sure and but they were you know they were really excited because they felt like they were following their musical bliss and were hoping that the fans would follow along this thing drops and capital a few weeks later you know it doesn't sell well instantaneously there's no obvious single and basically capital has this whole kind of turnover in their management where the people that brought the beastie boys on are no longer in charge and they they basically cut all marketing to the to the project. They're not mad at the Beastie Boys. They're like, you should just go make another record. It's no big deal. But we're not going to promote this record anymore. We're done with this. We need to focus on an, another record uh, currently in our queue, which was a Donny Osmond record. He probably had way less samples that he that had to be uh, <laughs> had to be cleared. <laughs> yeah. right. sure. That had to be such a kick in the gut 
for them to like spend all this time and they're creating this like their masterpiece and somebody's like hey i'm sorry donny osmond just walked in we got to go take care of that also Ugh. the bc boys tell us these stories about how like right when they're making this record they were in la and it was when they first started living together in some big hollywood mansion they were renting and it's just so happened that this Hollywood mansion had like all these locked claws. The people that owned the place, all their clothes were there and they were like 70s socialites. And so, but the Beastie Boys broke in and would just wear all their clothes, including all the women's clothes. And this was at a time when like 70s fashion was not cool, but all this kind of like all bippity boppity <laughs> hats and green velvet and stuff like that. So then you just picture them like rolling into these Capitol Records meetings high as and dressed, and dressed like, insane. Like, what I feel was, like I really squandered my early 20s when I hear stories like this. I'm like, dude, I, I just like drank six Sierra Nevadas and fell asleep with a lit cigarette in my hand. Like, these guys were living, man. Right. Uh, I, I just I have to point this out because you're, I was like, I wonder which Donny Osmond album was getting put out in 1989. Dude, okay. The Donny Osmond album that was getting put out in 1989 was called Donny Osmond. I'm going to read to you other album names from Donny Osmond that predate this album called Donny Osmond. There's the Donny Osmond album. To, lo- <laughs> to you with love, Donny. Portrait of Donny. Donny. Donald Clark Osmond. These are all albums that he put out before he put out an album called Donny Osmond. What the fuck is that? Creatively bankrupt. And this is like Capitol Records is just like, what's the marketing plan for this one? I don't know. Probably going to say his name a whole bunch. I would guess that that's the marketing plan. What? You remember watching MTV growing up and they would always have like the name of the artist, the name of the song, the name of the album. And I'd always be like, man, I wish one band would just have it be the same for like all three. <laughs> that could have been them. It could have been them. He wrote, a, Osmond. he wrote a song called Donny Osmond. I, you know what? I'm going to look at it. Mm. No, unfortunately not. Sacred Emotion. Close. These are terrible song names. Faces in the Mirror. My Secret Touch. I really hope this is somewhere on the list. This is number 999. <laughs> Might have to retire if that one comes what up. The, I'll have comes to up. specify Donny Osmond, 1989. Not the other Donny Osmond album that he put out. Very easy later. to get confused. Very easy. <laughs> Okay, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about the name of the record. So the name Paul's Boutique is actually it was a real men's clothing store, and this was an inside joke with the Beastie Boys. Ad Rock taped a radio commercial. It was a New York, a Brooklyn-based store that Ad Rock taped the commercial off the radio and would put on mixtapes for the other guys. Like over the years, they actually put the radio ad on the record. It's called Ask for Janice. That's the actual radio ad. The best in men's clothing. Call Paul's Boutique at for Janice. The number is 718-498-1043. That's Paul's Boutique, and they're in Brooklyn. I don't know if that counts as a sample, by the way, but that was a real ad for a real men's clothing store. Did that guy get paid on that? Well, I don't know, because what I heard about it was that by the time the record came out, unfortunately, the store had closed. They also took a picture of that corner in Brooklyn for the album cover. But the store had closed by the time the record came out. But MCA one of the Beastie Boys, bought the phone number from the phone company, set up an answering machine to field the, you know, because the phone number is said in the radio ad on the record, set up an answering machine, put it in like his mom's basement, and then would like check in with it every couple months. And they were apparently for years infinitely fascinated by the stuff that people would leave on this answering machine. Now, he on the answering machine, I should say, on the outgoing message, he was pretending to be Paul's Boutique. It, 
there was no way, theoretically, there was no way someone calling the answering machine would know it had any connection to the Beastie Boys. But like people would be trying to somehow figure out and or sometimes people would like angrily just talk shit on the message. So they actually they continued with this joke for a while. If you go to check your head at the beginning of I think the song is called The Maestro, they play some guy's drunken message from that answering machine where he just comes in. High. It's Donny Osmond. <laughs> <laughs> some guy just leaves a drunken message going like yo i'm gonna i'm gonna mess you up man like what the hell just like, what? like who does he think he's calling right now you can kiss my ass i'm interested in you anyhow i'm just interested in the b-boys so fuck you my man So they were they were really into this. I would love joke. to know. Let's I would call love it. We to need know to call it right on, now and, and, and oh add that God. in post. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> do you think they held like the boombox up to the TV to get that sample, or do you think they like called the local television station and were like, "Hey, do you guys have a Paul's Boutique thirty second ad? Can you send it to us?" Because I'm just picturing them like with the hit and play and record. <laughs> holding it up to the tv that's turned up i think it was a radio ad was the thing so they must have just taped it Ah, so they could have okay but but that was that thing where you're waiting by the we're old enough to remember waiting by the radio and so you miss like the first couple seconds of the song but you jump on it (laughs) like all rob's old simpsons uh vhs tapes ah yes they had to be spliced together like perfectly to try to pause out the commercials pause out the (laughs) it was an art form and you had to put the tape over the hole on the on the cassettes, and you could record oh, over so like you know, that <laughs> shitty Donny Osmond tape you had laying around. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so w- one more piece of context before we get into the songs. I wanted to mention that the song that was number one on the hip hop charts when this came out. Also wanted to mention this because it's a bit of a callback to our LL Cool J Cool J days. It's LL Cool J's "I'm That Type of Guy," which is a super creepy, breathy, weird LL Cool J vocal. Which I'd like us to listen to now. You're the type of guy that tells us stay inside while you're steady fronting and your homeboys ride. I'm the type of guy that comes when you leave. <laughs> I'm doing your girlfriend. That's something you can't believe. Cause I'm the type of guy. Cool. And he gets into the Wizard of Oz. Like, who's sampling? I don't know if you want to call that sampling or not. The Wizard of Oz OEO. What a perv. <laughs> that was from Again. the record. That was LL Cool J's Walking with the Panther record where he lost all his street cred. I, I wonder why. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's like, uh, he was, no, he was ahead of his time because, like, we were talking about it before, guys like Ice Cube. They got into doing these like direct to video, like family channel movies and stuff like that. And so he was just ahead of the time. He's like, listen, super lame, non threatening. That's where the money is. All right. Let me get, let me get me some of that. <laughs> Eventually, I'm going to be giving Lifetime Achievement Awards at the Oscars as a host. <laughs> just <you> myself. <laughs> they, he figured out, he's like, listen, I look very good in a suit. Okay. And you can do a lot of things in life if you just look really good in a suit. I'll have a character arc on 30 Rock. It'll be fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's also ripped too. That gives uh, yes. you some something to work with. It does give you something to work with, yeah. 
Does indeed. Okay, I suggest we segue into talking about some songs. The first one on our list... I want to talk a little bit about... uh, There's this review that I pulled up for this album. And it made me realize something about the album that I think was somehow escaping me. All right, So this is from the St. Petersburg Times. That is review of Paul's Boutique. It is, quote... Less appealing and more appalling than ever, the Beastie Boys strut and stumble through their second album, Paul's Boutique, like three pit bulls in a china shop. Three years after elevating rap music to new heights in sales and new lows in tastes with the multi-platinum license to ill, Adam Adrock Horowitz, Adam MCA Yauch, and Michael Mike D. Diamond return with a rapid-fire, profanity-laden barrage of screaming, scratching, and sampling that rarely rises above a chaotic din. So I was reading that, and I was like, wait a second. There's no profanity on this album. There's, like, almost no cursing on this album at all. Very little. Did the dude listen to the wrong album? (laughs) Like I didn't even realize that. But like, there's very little swearing on this album. There's a couple in like the b boy Booyabay stuff, but like, there's really not a lot of profanity. And I wonder if that was like personal choice. Well, I wonder if it's in relation to like modern era where it's. I think I'm remembering more profanity than you are. Like I'm not refuting that, but like maybe maybe just a few lines are sticking in my head, you know. But maybe it was just at the time there wasn't. Some of this shit, actually, when I was listening to um, Looking Down the Barrel of a Gun, I was sort of like, this is kind of like pre-gangster rap, like, which is seems really a shitty thing to ascribe to like three, you know, white guys from Brooklyn, basically. But I just wonder how maybe how much profanity there really was going on at that time. Okay. America's Most Wanted by Ice Cube came out like less than a year later. And like I cannot repeat some of the best lines on that album because I mean it is they, they, he lays it on pretty thick. True, this was '89. Uh, yeah, '89 is like I mean NWA had already come and gone as a thing. They were there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of very profane stuff. Maybe they were just very conscious of like trying to get stuff on the radio. I don't know. I just I feel like I'm taking a guess, but I don't think I just don't think it's their brand. I think their brand is they have a way of being dirty without being profane. Certainly. And I think they kind of like that better. I know, but I, in, I guess in my head, I had thought like, oh, yeah, they, they are profane. If you were to ask me like to come up with a bunch of lines where they're dropping F-bombs, though, I'm pretty hard pressed to do that. Like I said, there's some in that like the B-Boy Bouillabaisse where like MCA is just really like rapid fire rhyming. And I feel like there's some in there, but I think on the more like crafted stuff that they do, I think yeah. that it's, you know, they kind of intentionally leave it off, which I appreciate that. It's, it takes more talent to, as well, I say, it takes more talent to be a clean comic than a dirty comic. Definitely not their bread and butter, for sure. Wouldn't it be ironic if they had tried to avoid profanity and then it made its way into their biggest hit, Sabotage? Yeah, I got, I got this effing thorn in my side. I know. Uh, yeah, I remember uh, Adam when we performed at that uh, Battle of the Bands because we would do sabotage, but we did it for like a school event oh, in wow. high school, and I dropped yeah. the I dropped the effing in there, but like it's such a chaotic song that like nobody picked up on it. You can't and I was, like, tell, this little right. moment of rebellion. Like, Wait, yes. but did you drop the effing or the fucking? <laughs> oh no, I said I got this fucking thorn in my side, but like you couldn't tell anything that's going on. It's chaos. Yeah. So chaotic din. Let's get into the chaotic din, boys. Yes. Well, that's crazy, too, because even as somebody who's not like a, a hip-hop dude, that review sounded ridiculous, Tom, as you were reading it. I'm like, there's 
that's not accurate. No, it's really not. Anyway, yeah, so. But this, okay, so, but one thing that jumps out, right, and I think we said it in our last conversation, too, this ain't exactly dance music, either. It is chaotic. Chaotic is reasonable. I just don't think it's chaotic in a bad way. I think it's chaotic in a fun, exciting, you know, roller coaster of emotion kind of way, but it never really lets you ease into anything. It's always changing. It's always moving around, and I think the, well, not quite the first song, but the first quote-unquote real song on the record, Shake Your Rump, is a great example of that. I'll play a little sample of the song now. No, I don't rock the house party at the drop of a hat. Yeah. I beat a body down with the loot on my back. A lot of people, they be told that they hear me rock the mic. They be staring at the radio, staying up all night. I'm like a I'm there. 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 I
And he actually keeps like spreadsheets with chord changes and he scrambles the chords if he wants to like rip it off from something. He's a fucking weirdo, <laughs> by the way. Awesome. But, it, but it does make me wonder, people like the Dust Brothers, like what's their sort of process for calling on the stuff when they, when they want to? There was a little web uh, webisode or web miniseries. It might have been like Vice or something, their art department. But they were doing something where you'd go into a record store and these dudes would just pull out a random record. Uh, they might have even been blind, blindfolded, right? And then they had like four hours to go into the studio and to find a chunk on the record and then turn it into like a beat and a chorus. It was actually pretty cool. So again, I'm starting to kind of appreciate samples. This tune, yes to everything everybody said. I love and has been going through my head. It might be the last one where you shake your rum. Ah! And then just everybody <laughs> screams for about 12 seconds. And I, it just friggin' pumps me up, which is like, yes. So, that just yeah. kind of like, right? Oh. No. Yeah. They're probably man, like, it's, it's just I'm badass. picturing them like jumping around the studio yes. in like that 70s <laughs> gear that they have, just yelling yes. and like high <laughs> as a kite. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, here's another example. I don't, I didn't look up the whole history, but they did record a bong rip and put it in the song. I kind of wonder if it might be the first time someone did that. I mean, it's theoretically possible, right? Hmm. At that this point is in pre, time, this is pre yeah. marijuana based uh, hip hop. Right? Cypress Hill, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going to say Black. Uh, was it uh, Black Sunday that that was their big album? I guess Cypress Hill, the original Cypress Hill album, probably had that on it too. <laughs> Those guys like the weed. Yeah, the other the other fun little tidbit I heard about this one is that the is your name Michael Diamond? No, mine's Clarence. Was just like a messenger boy that showed up at the studio, and they were like, "Oh, we got to get this guy in the booth." Like he, <laughs> they're so high. He's at, he's literally just asking for Michael Diamond to deliver a package. Is your name Michael Diamond? No, mine's Clarence. Come here, stand here and say that again. (laughs) It's one of the things I really, in general, I I like what they're doing here and what one of the things that makes me feel like it's creative. And Tom, you you mentioned before, you alluded to here that they're very rhythmic rappers. They're not necessarily the best rappers in the world, but they have they have the rhythm thing down. And what I, I like what they do a lot with the samples is when they just drop something in. It, it's it can feel a little halting, but they drop something in that's totally not on beat, and try to make it fit in, like like shoving a square peg in a round hole kind of thing. And they do it a lot on the record, and I think I think uh, I think it works consistently for me. So, uh, the is your name Michael Diamond would be an example of that. Yeah, but that that also leads to this sense that not only that it's more frenetic. But, like, it does take you out of that dancing kind of rhythmic thing where it's just, like, all of a sudden it's just cuts to a guy just talking for, like, two and a half seconds. And you're, like, I was – if you're dancing and you're still dancing when it just cuts to a guy just talking, then you look like an idiot. And then you're, like, oh, yeah, yeah that's into it. Because there's, there's a couple tracks. And you said, like, nothing really did well on the radio. I feel like there's a couple tracks on here that – in my head, again, I'm not allowed. I don't go to dance clubs, but I feel like there's a couple tunes where these could, I could see these in a club, but I'm wondering if those are the same tunes where it's just jarring halt and then something weird happens and then they get back to it and, you know, DJs are like, I don't want this. This is going to ruin the flow of the room or whatever. Well, I mean, so. back to the idea that they were, these songs were sort of written for the club ultimately. And I think, like, I don't know if you alluded to this earlier, Rob, but. 
the fact that the Dust Brothers were sort of surprised when the Beastie said they wanted to, to rhyme over it because they had made these like sort of standalone club songs. Something tells me they weren't as like chopped up as you know they are on this record or you're right it would be like super weird so they probably were meant to like stretch out a little bit longer but but i think the fact that they probably were meant as standalones gives them so much of that texture and that feel that's like it feels like it's creating a vibe and you know it's it's not someone just busting out a drum machine and sort of like doing that manufactured kind of hip-hop song that is, is sort of simple to replicate no alan you make a really good point like if you're a working dj you're not playing for 35 minutes. You're playing for three and a half hours. And I wonder if like the music that they had put together would have been like a three and a half hour club set or, you know, and they had to chop it down to make it on an album. That That's a, I had never thought about that, but that's a really good point. Get the Dust Brothers in the line. Rob, can you call yeah, them real quick? I'll dial them up. <laughs> yeah. We want to talk about the uh, 20th anniversary of Mbop. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably like, dude, that, that paid for all of my houses. <laughs> Right. <laughs> that one record scratch was like that was a new indoor pool <laughs> so I think Shake Your Rump there's at least two different kinds of sampling on display on this record and Shake Your Rump is the one I find more innovative and creative which is that true kind of smash together of a bunch of different things feels more like a, a DJ mashup set like you said maybe that's what the Dust Brothers brought to the table is hey this bass line this Moog bass works over this Thin Lizzy drum beat, you know, and and things like that. If we were in the club, it would go on longer, but let's find ways to cut it into a song. It seems like a much more labor-intensive process overall. I think this is why you don't hear that. This is why, to me, it doesn't sound like a lot else that's out there. Well, just the gear they probably had at the time. I don't know much about, you know, the recording process, let alone, like, how you record samples and loops and all that stuff. But apparently they had to, like, sequence this stuff so that, like, Right as something was ending, the next thing was queued up and it was a very like manual process, which not to mention the you know $40 million that it's estimated it would cost to record this today is, is right. what I saw. Just that and the labor alone just seems like a it a had to starter. be that I mean this was pre-laptop era. Like they were yeah, everything was being done <laughs> on the tape and on desktop computers, and it yeah, it had to be extremely rough but to me shake your rump for that reason is kind of a a microcosm of everything i like about this record to me it's paul's boutique kind of distilled down into you know this is what i think is good about it this is what i think people think is good about it it shows off the creativity of the beastie boys other tracks are a little bit lazier even if they're fun but that's my take on shake your rump yeah well this was also what they led with in terms of sort of going to be the first single off the album it makes sense it tracks to that it just has that like 80s hip hop sound. Like when I think of kind of like late 80s hip hop, this is kind of one of those songs that that jumps to mind. Cool. Moving on to a little bit of a lazier version of sampling, but still a fun song, Eggman. by the Superfly sample. And listen, I'm I'm a huge fan of the Superfly. I, I like the Superfly theme. I like the Shaft theme. These are these are good areas to mine. But it, it is a little bit lazier. This is also, interestingly, the Beastie Boys, before they recorded hip-hop music or kind of converted to hip-hop music, they were a hardcore band. So they do all play, they did play instruments back in the 80s. 
and had a hardcore band. And this was them covering, they had a song called egg Raid on Mojo and they're effectively sort of covering a piece of, or sampling even a piece of themselves too. here. Yeah. So I think this is a really, I think this is a really silly, immature song. It's a great example of how the Beastie Boys are ridiculously immature. They're, they're talking about going around and egging people. <laughs> no, but they actually did that though. So apparently they used to, you know, and I, I think we talked about this last time, so we can edit that comment out or whatever, but, um, <laughs> you know, just, just has a, how the sausage is made. All right. But apparently they used to stand on top of their apartment and just egg people across the street. And like, that was like a thing. It was just, you know, even going back years. So I'm not sure they were just like writing about it. I think they actually, yeah. Okay. So you this is a you think this is a game? You know, they we're living. This, we're living on these streets. <laughs> we live in the yeah, egg throwing. This life. is their version of being what? hard. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If we egg the mailman, oh, yeah. which that's got to suck. That's got to be. It's definitely not as bad as getting shot. But. They talk about loading up an egg into a slingshot. How intense would that be? Yeah, right. I thought. Yeah. That's well, it might have been coming the, down from up from like a six-story building or something like right. that. Right. But listen, I will. I will reiterate. This song's dumb, and the thing that I think is dumb about this song is like, listen, if you're going to write a song that's really stupid about egging people, don't also tell me not to be racist. Like, I get it. It Maybe isn't the time to get a little preachy when you're talking about leave a man standing with an egg mustache, but not not the biggest issue I have with it. I I also was very curious as to the, yo, they just got my little cousin essay sample that they put in there. Uh, It's a great one. It's a great sample. Yeah, they clearly recorded somebody saying that. I hope that they actually found like a Hispanic person. No, I think it's from oh? Cheech and Chong. It's from Cheech and Chong. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. That that is that is probably my favorite part in the song. And just just to be clear about the anti-racism line, it was you make the mistake and judge a man by his race. Go through life with egg on your face. Yes, what? and then they're right back into Wise words. Eggman. Yes, <laughs> that was building the crescendo to the thing that I just cannot get over. All right, uh, these lines are all together. I did not edit these lines to make them closer together or anything like that. All right, Humpty Dumpty was a big fat egg. He was playing the wall. Then he broke his leg, tossed it out the window. Three minutes hot. Hit the Rasta man. He said, "Blood clot. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? I egged the chicken, and then I ate then his, I ate leg. his leg. leg. Humpty Dumpty was a big fat egg." rhyme egg and leg twice within six lines of each other <laughs> no they do that shit that's pretty though dumb. In, in what you want there's a line that's like everybody rapping like it's a commercial acting like life is a big commercial so like they just do that shit okay i can i can i can take the same word being repeated for effect but you can't be like like it's almost like because i feel like uh, i think mca delivers the what came first the chicken or the egg line and uh, i think maybe it's like mike d who does the humpty dumpty was a big fat egg like it's almost like they didn't talk to each other about the lines that they wrote and then they didn't realize it are you suggesting like strategic planning went into the architecture of you heard but they were (laughs) i know but like i could think of a lot of words that rhyme with egg besides like when i I, so i learned something new this week in the line you mentioned which is the hit the rastaman he said blood clot apparently that's that's really harsh jamaican slang that's like a really bad word 
in, in oh, Jamaican really? slang. Yes. Oh wow. The term of exasperation, but I but I heard it's very it's very dirty. <laughs> so mind mind your matters. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will watch that next time. I'm about to have an embolism. All right, my 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 other favorite one because of what's implied was the line: "Woke up in the morning, peculiar feeling. Looked up and saw egg dripping from the ceiling." The implication is that someone has snuck into the room and planned, timed it out just so. I like that. That's how they got you. I, I sort of assumed that it was some kind of like nocturnal emission that somehow made it all the way up to the ceiling. Everything's jizz in your mind. Wait, so is that around the time when the Jaws psycho Listen. kind of drop happens? Because uh, that would make sense. There's like a Jaws the- psycho thing that they. Oh, that dun, 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 dun. Yeah. No, though. No, yeah, there's like yeah. stabs. Yeah, the, the violin stabs are from a psycho. Also, yeah. this week reading the lyrics was the first time I realized they were referring to the Cadbury eggs commercial from when we were kids. The comes from a chicken, not a bunny dummy. Wow. Yeah. Well done, yeah. Rob. I mean, I assumed it was just a general <laughs> Easter uh, reference, but uh, no. <laughs> Taking it a step further. I like it. <laughs> I like the song. I'm a fan. I, listen, it's a fun song. Don't get me wrong, but it's a dumb song. Like it's dumb. I, yeah. They would tell you it's dumb. Oh yeah, they probably. <laughs> they're not like listen the poetry that we are getting across here. Did you hear that thing about racism? Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> I heard a podcast where they talked about Bob Dylan doing that. He's <laughs> <laughs> a symbol of life. <laughs> And then he lands that big knockout at the end. <laughs> Racism is bad. Whoa! Head explodes. Uh, okay. Anything else on Eggman before we move on to High Plains Drifter? I think we got it covered. You got it covered. All right. High Plains Drifter. Tom, I think. Oh, Adam, you want to? You, oh, you have a you have a comment about this? I was salivating about the most I've ever wanted to punch another person <laughs> named Adam in the face as hard as I could. But we'll get to that, Tom. We'll come back to my my angry line. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that I was uh you know the uh, the mayor of uh, shit talking on High Plains Drifter, but I will I will gladly take the mantle and run with it. Um, yeah, like the course of the song is such a mess. Their whole thing is quick trading back and forth. You can hear everything that they say. And this is just like they got the high, high, and then the, was that Mike D or no, that's Ad Rock going to put that. I'm This keeps talking underneath it the whole time. I can't understand a word they're saying. I, I think uh, I, yeah, yeah I, I recommended we include this because I wanted to make sure we weren't just praising these guys. I think this song is a complete failure. It doesn't work at all. It's them trying to remake Paul Revere from the first album and failing. Although props for using the Eagles, those shoes as a sample. <laughs> Deep <laughs> cut. How they extracted that out of an Eagles album. Well done. Yeah. yeah. No, go ahead, Tom. No, please. Please, Alan. I, I'm just... <laughs> No, talk about the song some more. Come on. Okay. Well, tell me how you really feel. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, it's like I said, one of the few times that they 
that they really fail at the sample. It's the it's like right around like three minutes forty five seconds. The Susie is a headbanger line that comes in, but it's so distorted and slow so, so slowed down you can't tell what they're saying, and it's supposed to complete a rhyme. They're really good at that. They do that so many times in this album, crisply and cleanly, and like you can follow along with it. And this one, it just kind of sounds like, and like if I did not know that that was Susie's a headbanger, I would not know that that's the line that they were trying to complete. It's just. Yeah, it's a fail. It seems like, again, this album is just like smacks of like mind-numbing effort. And it seems like you could have just done that better. They had to have heard that and been like, oh, this is the version we're going to go with or we could do it better. And they chose not to do it better. And I could tell. They chose to go back to one minute and 41 seconds and encourage whichever Adam it was to make the most obnoxious pronunciation of the word withdrawal I have ever heard in my life. Rob, can we cue that up? Certainly, Adam. Oh my god. Like I can't envision them listening to that on really nice studio speakers and looking at each other and be like, yeah, we nailed that one. Like, oh god, it's like, so Capital's like, this is what you spent our money on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, how many syllables are in the word right. withdrawal? I don't know, like nine, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. And they're wearing a coat made out of feathers at this point <laughs> at this meeting. <laughs> Yeah, no, this is it, this is totally filler. I mean, there's no other way to put it, which I don't think they needed much filler on the album. Honestly, I think it was pretty robust. You know, I hate to see what was left on the chopping floor if they were like, yeah, we kind of need this. This just ties like these songs together. Like I, 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 I think it was tying it back to their old stuff. Paul Revere, we didn't mention Paul Revere as one of the main hits from License to Ill, but I think that's one of the, their signature songs other than maybe Fight for Your Right. And... I think they wanted to have that line to their past. I, I think it was conscious. They were trying to redo it, and it and it failed. Fail. Epic fail, beasties. Moving on. Shame. For shame. Let's talk about Hey Ladies. This was actually the, the only one that kind of cracked the charts, I think. I think they'd released this one either first or second, Hey Ladies, as a single. And you listen to it, you can, you can kind of understand why. It's not necessarily one of my favorite tracks on the album, but... This is the one that has the ballroom blitz call. That out, is correct. Right? Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's by cool. sweet. Yeah. Oh, so she good. She's the passionate one. Yeah. That caught my ear. I also, in the last 30 seconds, it turned into a Prince song and I got really excited because that there's like a guitar sounds very princey and there's this uh, vocoder kind of harmony and it, it was like about to turn into like an R&B tune and I got really excited and then the song ended and I was like, oh, <laughs> like I wanted more of it when they were ending it. Like the, the, the spot they were going to, I wanted to keep it to keep going. Hey, 
like that polyester look. Damn. You know, I really love to do your hair sometimes. I think this is one of the more interesting hooks created out of a sample. You got the Hey Ladies, Get Funky, Cowbell, Record Scratch. Like, it's a weird amalgam that creates the hook itself. And that, to me, is auditorily interesting. I was, like, looking at the lyrics for this album, uh, for the song, and I'm still at a, at, like, I can't understand how they even knew to reference this. I got more hits than Sadahara O. Oh, yeah. You guys, do you know Sadahara O? He, yeah, Lay it on he me. was I don't a know that reference. Japanese league baseball player who had like the <laughs> world record for most home runs in a career. All right, how like pre-internet days? It's not like they were just like, oh, I was on Reddit and I saw this weird TIL. You know, like no, they knew this somehow. He was like, he never played in the majors or anything like that. Like, how the hell do you know that? They must be just be big baseball fans though, because it made me when I looked at fact up as well it made me think of a on what's the other album where he says i got more hits than rod carew and he's in sure shot yep got more action than my man john will (laughs) yeah got bad hits like i was rod carew yeah i mean i'm not yeah i've never heard of either of those baseball players so it occurs to me they're baseball fans before but yeah they probably i guess have to be yeah it seems like a weird thing that you're like super New York hipster was in a hardcore band and then you turn to hip hop and you're also a huge baseball fan. Like usually there's not a lot of crossover in the sports. Oh, New York, man. New York's a a pretty happening baseball spot. Maybe they had to really search for a line uh, that rhymed with O. That's possible. That might've been hard. Yeah. (laughs) They're like, well, we really want to rhyme O with O. Is there a way that we could make that work? Hmm. One of the O's could be an Oriental <laughs> fellow. <laughs> get, get out that uh, that encyclopedia of baseball over yes. there. Let's find some Speaking words. Speaking of good rhymes in this one, though, I've always liked the Tom Foolery rhymed with Chuck Woolery rhyme. That is, yes, that is a good rhyme. And I mean, yeah. oh, dude, Chuck Wool, that's great. That's genius. These are man. these references are expiring quickly. Like we're just old enough to understand <laughs> yes. most of this stuff. <laughs> There's no Bob Eubanks references uh, on there uh, or Tony. Oh Dunst. no! But speaking of uh, speaking of the old, they, the delivery of this lot of this line also is super odd. The welcome back Cotter delivery, like so, they reference first welcome back Cotter, a TV show that I'm sure nobody under the age of you know 37 <laughs> has even heard of, but they deliver it in like a welcome back Cotter type of way, and it, I was like I was immediately drawn back to uh, Milky Cereal and like the delivery uh, from L.O. Oh, of like the Cocoa yeah. Puffs and the you know make it special K lines. I'm like, how many times do you deliver this in the in the studio? And there's like people that are listening to you do this and how are they just like print it that's the one nailed it i have a little i have a possible explanation for you but this this Does reference it involves lots of marijuana it involves watching the show welcome back Cotter. is anyone here actually watch welcome back Cotter? <laughs> That was that Horshack. It's the that's Horshack. He's doing Horshack, yeah. who's basically who Ad Rock sounds like. The aforementioned "Make my withdrawal" that Adam hates. That's he, I think he's very <laughs> inspired by Horshack from <laughs> Welcome Back, Cotter. 
You know what? I'll give that to you. I I think I maybe have seen two episodes of Welcome Back, Hotter in my life. Somehow I do know that Horshack is a thing and John Travolta was on it, right? <laughs> yeah, Vinny Barbarino. He's awesome. And there was the the theme song. was like, welcome back. Oh, welcome back. It, that's oh, the yeah. uh, Love and Spoonful guy, John Sebastian, wrote the theme song. Yeah, it's a little bit of a gem. And then it was sampled by Mace. or Who was, who was the guy with... Uh, with Puff. The, the, the guy where nothing ever changed but his limp. You talking about him? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It was some 90s bling rapper sampled the, the Welcome Back Hotter theme song and a hit song, I recall. I'll put it on the Spotify playlist for you guys. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. All right. We'll move on from Hey Lady. Oh, I will say another thing about Hey Ladies. I think it's a good example of their kind of interspliced vocal style that... They don't. They don't do it on every single song on the record. But this that thing where they're jumping in and out of lines, the three of them, that feels like their signature style to me, and it's on display well in Hey Ladies. So glad to hear it. Okay. Oh, we actually skipped over. Sorry, we're going a little out of order here, but we wanted to talk about the sounds of science next. It's inspired hate already. It's inspired annoyance. Has perked up Adam's crazy good Beatles sample recognizing ears. I, I did. Uh, we were we were texting earlier in the week, and and I I was going through it, and I I shot over that I think that this is the oboe from when I'm 64, which I was uh I was on it's the mark. Ridiculous now, pull, Adam. Because I was like honestly in my head, I was like timing from when you got the text with listen to these songs to when you were like hey is that the oboe from when i'm 64 like you must have started listening to it right away and then got to that song and it, it was like 15 minutes later he was like yeah it's the oboe from when i'm 64 yeah, i never would have caught that either like never. i've heard that song so you know there's the obvious like bookends or you know the uh, beatles song at the end but uh yeah i wouldn't pick up on that either yeah, you're I feel like even after you pointed it out, I had to go look for it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost like I've listened to the Beatles' entire anthology. And you're I don't not know, a, a thousand times Beastie's fan, huh? Something. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. Is it? It just doesn't tie okay, out. So again, though, just, I don't don't have the don't have the research on this, but this could be the first example of Beatles being sampled in a hip hop song, right? Is that possible? One of the things I like about the Beastie Boys, this is early in hip-hop, it was 1989, pretty early in sampling. We said it was a very manual process. And one thing I really appreciate about these folks is they're going at a lot of different genres of music. There was that period in hip-hop in the early days, the Sugar Hill Gang and, and beyond, where it was just like, let's just take a funk song, let's strip out the vocals, and let's rap over that. End of story. This shows this kind of crate-diving, intense music fan approach to this where they're really going and looking for weird stuff whether it's sweets ballroom blitz or when i'm 64 i like that a lot i mean quite possibly like the least street cred having song of all time it's like let's talk about the garden we're going to make and how we're going to go on vacation with our grandchildren (laughs) it will be delightful And, and even that i mean it's it might just be two beats yeah you know i mean it's it's not even like it's a a hook of the song it's Boom. It's, it's, it's right. nothing. And for them to take that and to do something with it, again, my appreciation continues to increase as we talk more about it and the more I listen to it. Come to the dark side. Oh, well, when we do this again next week, you'll be, have even more appreciation <laughs> for this album. 
Yeah. I, I like that they leaned into the Beatles on this track and sampled a you know bunch of different things. Like you said, yeah, doing both an oboe and this piece of when I'm 64. That's a that's an odd choice on a couple levels, but using the kind of plain sounds from back in the USSR, using the drums from I think the Sgt. Pepper reprise. I want to say I'm not even 100 percent sure yeah. where all this stuff is coming from. They use the guitar from the end at the end of Abbey Road, which they're clearly fans of because they're trying to do their own little Abbey Road ending at the end of this record. Oh, yeah. Well, well, yeah. Slightly, slightly nice. less successfully, Adam. Constantly on, constantly on. The fountain do not rope well, it's kind of funny. I, I actually, and Adam, you'll uh, never invite me back to this podcast when you hear this, but like I heard that before I heard Abbey Road, in my, like in my life. So I really hadn't heard much Beatles. So that it was sort of this weird payoff that when I finally did hear Abbey Road, which now I consider like probably my, you know, my favorite Beatles album. I was like, hey, I know that now. So so in a weird way, it sort that's of like totally cool. activated something that I don't think that's why I like, you know, Abbey Road specifically, but it's you know, there's like a connection point that is sort of unexpected. No, and I, I think that is cool for, from the sampling world. If you have the wherewithal or if you're just curious, if you're curious enough to go look up a sample or look up how a song was produced, you're already in that musical vibe, that musical zone. So you're going to get turned on to something cool and something new, right? So the people who listen to this and, you know, don't really care where it came from, it's not all that much of a big deal that they don't know who King Crimson is for, you know, sampling of 21st century schizoid man and a Kanye song or whatever it is, you know, the fact that you heard something new and it pointed you in a direction that's super cool. And the fact that in the reverse mind blown Beatles have been like a transition into me appreciating sampling and this hip hop genre. Holy crap. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Yes. Did you eat the chicken then eat his leg? (laughs) I was going to ask Hang on, there's a song about that. Let me go. Let me go. <laughs> reference the lyrics. I remember I had a young, you know, some guy from work. A younger guy was in my car one time a couple of years back, and I put on the Royal Scam Kid Charlemagne, and he was like, "Oh, Kanye sampled this." I was like, "God, what the <laughs> hell is going on?" There's also that Black Cal. Who was yes, Uptown Baby. Bump. Yeah, that's what it was. They, they yeah. I think that was Mace out. too. Is that Mace? It, no, that was um, that was like Drake. some one hit wonder, like um, oh. not tag team. I don't know. It was some fucking. Oh, the guys in the baseball uniforms? Yes. That, that video? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Hmm. Hey, I would sample Black Cow. <laughs> Why not? Black Cow's a hot song. It's a jam. Yeah. Okay, last uh, last song. We've talked about Paul's Boutique plenty. Let's get let's move on here. Tom, you want to say something? I just, you know, was, are we just going to pass without comment that they, they, they have the line, uh, you know, she woke up in the morning and her face was coated, and we're just going to pass that by and act like it passed oh, indiscretions? Or, uh, I assume they were talking about egg, think. Tom. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. See, everything's egg with you, Rob. Dripping from the ceiling in that exact moment. <laughs> I'm just going to say, like, almost, if there is there a time limit on, uh, you know, your past indiscretions catching up with you, because that seems that, that's pretty sexual assaulty, you know? I think they covered themselves with say? one line about uh, treating women with, with respect on a, on a future album. <laughs> yeah. It was just a blanket. Was it, uh, covered all, was it on that right? song, uh... Girls, okay. Last song we agreed to talk about looking down the barrel of a gun. 
let Tom go first because I think he has a has a specific gripe with this song. Well, first of all, it sucks. Um, that's that's part <laughs> of my specific gripe with this song. It's just it's that's very it? one note, <laughs> and you know, like that sample of that. It's not good enough to carry the whole song. Rob, you have said in another alternate dimension where this was recorded the first time that we did it, um, you had mentioned that you think that this was them <laughs> pointing towards their future and less pointing towards their past. But, like, I honestly don't see the connection between this and any of the other, like, Sabotage or any of the other songs that they put out or even really? other, like, What You Want. I don't see the connection to What You Want. This reminds because, me like, of Sabotage a lot. Um, less successful than Sabotage, for sure, but, like, yes. in that direction. Um, like that's or like gratitude where it's just well i mean this is this sounds to me like so i didn't realize how much they or not how much but i I didn't realize to what extent they were like a hardcore band before license to ill and apparently this is sort of this song is a little bit of what they used to sound like i know i mentioned this last time but i the first time i heard this song was the anthrax cover version on the beavis and butthead (laughs) do america soundtrack so that when I heard, finally heard this, I was like, hmm, I, I don't think they'd be covering Anthrax. I could be wrong. I feel like, you know, you listen to, like, What You Want, and What You Want has got a very loud and distorted, overdriven instrumentation on it. But there's, like, they do the, the cutting in, cutting out. This is just so monotonous. It just carries through the whole time, and I can't... And I feel like in my head, by the way, I think I, I think the thing I held before was rhyming and stealing and not even looking down the barrel of a gun. It's just it's unmemorable. It doesn't really stick with you. And so that in and of itself will be enough reason for me to hate the song. But I also do have to nitpick about the fact that there is not, no such thing as a 22 gauge. I get it. 24 is my age. 22 is my gauge. Yeah, that is a uh, a rhyme. It's cute. That it, oh, the words cute. rhyme together, <laughs> but you clearly don't know anything about guns, and you just track my earlier statement about this being a gangster rap song. If if they're packing twenty two gauge as like, packing. yeah, right next to their twenty two is the slingshot with the egg yes, in it. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so you know, it, it, I, like I said, I, that's I literally I literally taught my five year old how to shoot using a twenty two caliber, not twenty two <laughs> gauge, because that's not even a thing. And so I think that that they were they were trying to say that they have a twenty two caliber, but even that is like that's nothing a rep. That's the you know that's basically like a step above a BB gun. So anyway, <laughs> yes, and you're you're. I'm just so picturing hardcore. these guys walking down and walking down an alley, and they're like they're twenty two pistol falls out and then like they're uh, like shit all i have is these eggs now (laughs) 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 and a donny osman poster (laughs) so my favorite tidbit about this song is that the main beat is from kind of like an instrumental section all right sorry the whole song is instrumental but it's from a section kind of late in the tune in the middle of a tune called last bongo in belgium and the band is called Michael Viner's Incredible Bongo Band. I'll put it on the Spotify playlist for you all in the notes for you all to listen to. But Michael Viner's Incredible Bongo Band record is on the list of 1,001 yeah. albums you must hear before you die. Yes! Before I could make the joke, it's actually on there. Yes! yes. Looking forward to that one. That sounds like that's going to be a... Talk about yeah. it. I mean, listen, I know we've had a lot of band naming arguments, but Michael Viner's Incredible Bongo Band is a terrible name. Yeah. 
you really paint yourself into a corner <laughs> when you limit yourself to one instrument in the band's name. What kind of stuff do you guys? It's mostly bongos. Anything else? Look at the look at the album, dude. It's it couldn't all be any worse than those thirty-minute widespread panic bongo solos. <laughs> if any of you've had the displeasure of watching those, yeah. But at oh least at the God. end of that, like other instruments came in, and it wasn't just like, all right, and now thirty more minutes of bongo. Let's go. At least during that, I was high on opium. Yeah. <laughs> it makes a lot of things palatable, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does. Great. Oh, well, man. I think we've talked about all the songs we want to talk about on Paul's Boutique for the second time. All that remains is for us to go around the room and vote. Does this, does Paul's Boutique, the Beastie Boys' second album, which came out in 1989, does it belong on the list of 1001 albums? You must hear before you die. Yes or no? Throwing it to Tom first. Unqualified, yes. I feel like uh, I ended up talking about this album in a much more negative way than I think the overall experience of hearing this album, especially for the first time. If you've never heard this album before, like, listen to it. It is a sound explosion in your face. It's like, uh, what's that on The the Simpsons? I think Homer made a makeup gun where like, he fired the makeup. <laughs> it's, it's like that. Homer, at you. I thought you were going to say it's a, it's a party in your ears and everyone's invited. No, 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 no. <laughs> It's like it comes at you fast and hard, and there's a lot of color, lights, explosions, and craziness. It's good, really. There's a lot of layers, a lot of depth to it. I like it. Everyone should listen to it. Even if it's not your thing, you will walk away from it better uh, appreciating music generally. And as Adam demonstrated, maybe even appreciating a whole new vein of music that you had never given uh, credit before. So big thumbs up from Tom. Alan, what do you think? Yeah, I think it absolutely belongs. I mean, it's some people consider it the best hip hop album of all time. I can't claim that, nor do I have enough context to support that statement. But the fact that it's it's regarded that way by a lot of people, and you know, the Beastie Boys are such an iconic band, and this is in my mind clearly their best album. That I, I don't see how you know you can't put it on that list. Yeah, you know, uh, Tom, everything you said, like coming in blind to this when I heard this album, or if you haven't heard it in a while, go back, put on a set of good headphones. Don't do earbuds. Give this album the the listen it deserves. Even if it's not in your genre, I super appreciate what they did, what it took to put it together. Yeah, so it, it it's on the list. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I like it. I think it's a ton of fun. I think it fits nicely in the Beastie Boys whole catalog and and in general though I'm I'm always going to vote for the Beastie Boys. They're they're a group that's willing to take chances. They move the ball forward. They do different things on every album. The next album, they kind of came back and started playing instruments again. Like each each of their albums has something kind of different to offer, and you you can pick and choose which one you think is the best. But I think they're all have something worthwhile about them. And I really always just appreciate when artists, especially ones that have had a lot of fame and money, try continue to try new things instead of just just retreading the same old ground. On top of all that, I like epic commercial failures. Those are always interesting to me too. So yeah, absolutely. You should listen to this. It's a, it's a ton of fun. Sit with it. Definitely a great headphone. Listen, it belongs on the list. Beastie boys, you're on the list, baby. You done the done validation. It. You've been finally waiting for is here. You done done it. <laughs> yeah. Forget about all, all your words. Contact yeah. with the Dalai Lama and work for freedom around the world and equity. <laughs> this is what you were waiting for. So all that remains here. So it's on the list. All that remains here now is to talk about 
next week. I believe we're gonna we're gonna spin that wheel you got over there, Tom, the Albinator five thousand. We we are so uh, for the audience' sake, I guess we're gonna pretend that we didn't already do this one time last week, unaware that it wasn't being recorded, and we already all know what the what the album is gonna be. But drum roll, please. Next week we are going to be listening to Anthem. Come on, Smash Mouth. Come on, Smash Mouth. It's the Shrek 2 soundtrack again. Come on. No. It is <laughs> the, broken. Sorry. the prodigies, the fat of the land. I think that <laughs> this is one of those ones where I have a very clear image in my head of a video for this, which I think is like two guys in a sewer waving their hands <laughs> in front of the camera. <laughs> one guy's painted like a, you know, Devil with horns and shit. No, that's like uh, that's that was hair. like a hair choice. It, it, it's almost like he shaved the middle of his head so that he could have just the weird horns. St- or he just no. was like the most intelligent balding guy of all time, and he's just like, I'm <laughs> working with this. I'm going to make it work. I feel like that guy too. He was one of the first guys that had the the bull ring. Or, yeah, he was uh, one of the early yeah. adopters of that style. Let's say. Yeah. So this will be interesting. Hard to say. I'm looking forward to it, but. <laughs> We'll give it a sh- we'll give it a spin. Come on, come on, come play my game, Rob. Yeah, do you have any of that opium laying around? To listen to this for the next week. <laughs> no. Just play this on repeat while you sleep and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I hope you'll join us for that. Please listen to the prodigy, the fat of the land, along with us. We'll be talking about it again next week and. As always, if you missed any of the random musical references we made, we made, I know we made a ton on this show. We're gonna, we compiled them all in a Spotify playlist for you. It's in the notes of the episode. So take a listen to the tracks we, we brought up there that aren't on the album. And if you think we got it right, if you think we got it wrong, shoot us an email at 1001 album complaints at Gmail. We'd love to hear from you either way. Be as literate as possible or we will mock you endlessly. Just kidding. You only have to be as literate as us, which is not a huge <laughs> threshold to me. Set your sights on that. Send us all the hate mail you like. Tell us how wrong we are. Tell us where our research is off or tell us how amazing we are and how brilliant our analysis of these classic records is. We look forward to it. So until next week... <laughs> On 1001 Album Complaints, I've been Rob. I have been Tom. Alan. And I'm Adam. Boosh. We did record this one, right?